0: Nine, eight, seven, six,
1: five, four, three, two, one.
0: What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the
2: sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. It's time to be mindful
0: and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host Natalie B. <laughs>
3: Ooh, I forgot about that.
1: <laughs> I managed to get it all in there. Um, you know, had to had to put a little record scratch in there, but uh, managed to get it all in there. Howdy and hello and welcome, everybody. This is the Hive Jive Live. Via Podbean Live, and we uh, we are all three here, myself, Ken, and obviously Miss Natalie B. from the Natural Beekeeping Corner, and we are here to uh, BS a little bit and answer any of your beekeeping questions. This is definitely your opportunity, if you have any natural beekeeping questions, to ask the experts right here live in person Quote unquote, virtually. (laughs) We should totally do an in-person show someday, but um, I haven't figured out how that would work. (laughs) That would be
3: awesome. Yeah, I would totally do that.
1: (laughs) We've we've had a couple of opportunities to actually do a live podcast um, through different events and venues that have invited us to come out. COVID obviously put a huge damper on that. One of them was going to be the American Beekeeping Federation this year, It would have been January, February, I think, of this year. Um, Mm -hmm. They ended up canceling the event, but they had invited the Hive Jive to come and do a live podcast there at the convention, which would have been awesome. Mm -hmm. But we shall just have to wait and see. (laughs)
3: Yep. In the meantime, this is the next best thing.
1: That's right. This is uh, this is this or Zoom. And I promised you, you would not have to get all fancied up and nobody would be able to see you. So we're on the audio version instead.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: I see works for me. Keeping promises.
3: Yep, I see JMJ Plum. Uh, actually, you you are on the chat with the Mindful beekeeper version Thursdays. I've seen you there. So that's really cool. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, by the way.
1: Yes. Welcome everybody. Um, I would go through and name them off, but I learned from experience that a lot of these usernames (laughs) are not as uh, friendly to try to say and and read off in a smooth manner. So we're going to forego that and we'll just stick with Natalie's welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us.
3: Well, last time I tried to do that, by the way, on on the chat with the mindful beekeepers, I uh, completely messed up everybody's first name because, you know, the the screen name or or the handle name is different. And sometimes their first name is completely like uh, Cooley Cooley is Hugh, I think. And then I think there was Grant. That's who's here, I think. But I was just like so confused and everybody was making fun of me (laughs) because of it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it can definitely be a trick for certain. And there was some last time that uh, almost sounded inappropriate. And then you've got you know like Rachel, her screen name is Squeaky, but I saw her icon and her picture, and I knew who she was. And then whenever it said Squeaky was calling in, I didn't make the connection <laughs> as to who was that. So yeah, it can it can definitely uh, get you jumbled up for certain. Hi, Rachel.
4: Hello. Can you hear
1: Good me? Good morning. Yes ma'am. Good
4: morning Rachel. Good yep, morning yeah it's 7am it's just getting light it was dark as I put my boots on and it's raining well misty rain so hopefully I won't get too wet.
0: Hopefully not. Well it's, it's 103 here Fahrenheit.
4: <laughs> don't tease me I am um, I generally don't mind winter because I we need the rain we're very dry here always but I'm sort of over it now it's been Wet and miserable now for a couple of months, and you know, just raining a lot. Which I'm sure my bees are over now too, because they uh, hunker down in there most days, and then they get a couple of hours out to find that everything's been washed away. But um, yeah, hopefully, it means we'll have a really flush spring when it finally turns up.
3: Hopefully.
4: Oh, hold on! I have to. I've got to hang up on you, otherwise, I'm going to yell in your ear because my puppy's taking off after a kangaroo.
1: (laughs) oh well there you go (laughs) that's one way to start so okay um we'll go ahead and open it up anybody who has the ability to chat if you don't want to physically call in and talk you can type a chat in here and i will read them to uh, the other members here and we'll get those answered or you can physically call in if you have questions and i know to get everything up and going um ken has been chomping at the bit for two weeks now and he says he has a whole slew of questions and could take up the entire time slot. But I did promise everybody I would be more than happy to mute him if somebody else had a question. <laughs> so, yeah, no so take it away, Ken. Natalie,
0: on I know that you and Les are working, or y'all are figuring. Or Les did the natural. He's trying to use the feral bees, using the feral bees to see. Which of the colonies can what I want to say maintain or take care of the Varoramites. Uh, and and I, I'm having the trouble. Some of the I'm trying to look at some of that up here. Uh, what I have noticed is if I buy bee uh, queens from say up north or out west or northwest or or east or wherever, some of those queens the fer- the feral bees I've put them in with swarms of feral bees and they will let them lay and then do away with them and then raise their own queen which I understand that because they're wanting the queen that smells like them mm-hmm. but uh uh-huh.
3: so so basically um I'm, is your question um how does this work, or how can you make it work so they don't kill your queen? Or what's exactly really, um, I'm,
0: what I'm I'm trying to figure out. I've already figured it out, but <laughs> I have a I have I have a colony now that mm-hmm. has a uh, that I had two colonies move in. One is queenless. One mm-hmm. has a queen, and by the way, she's an inch and a half long, big queen, and they're both mm-hmm. feral. So I'm mixing those two together. But I could have taken a a frame of eggs and larvae out of one of my others and put in there mm-hmm. and let them raise their own queen. I just figured, well, I'm going to mix them so they'll have a queen quicker because we're getting kind of late in the season here. Instead mm-hmm. of uh, instead of letting them raise a queen.
3: Okay. And and when you mean mix them, you mean combine the two because one right, doesn't the have a queen. The right. And right, you're trying right. to Okay. So that's a good strategy because um when you uh keep larger colonies, they will have better chances of success. Uh they'll have more, more foragers, they'll have more um flexibility to adapt to the the cycles of forage and weather. Uh they'll have more uh, tricks in their tool bags basically. They'll have more Cohorts of sisters, and that makes the colony, the superorganism, more apt at adapting to whatever is being thrown at them. So that's a good idea. And then you can always, once they've built up and they've gotten stronger, you can always split them back up if you need more colonies. Uh, And Mm -hmm. then, but uh, what I would say is this uh, for central Texas, we're kind of entering a dearth right now, Uh, the main dearth of the summer. In most areas and what i would say is that rather than having them raise if you were to split that you uh, rather than having them raise their own queen at that time uh, which is really hard to do in a dearth nothing really works so, so you have to work with the superorganism, organism and uh, usually in active flow you can do all kinds of things that you cannot do in a, in, in a period of dearth and that's true wherever you are in the world right So in a period of dearth, you kind of more or less want to make sure that you don't disrupt them too much if everything else is looking good. And so because of that, if you were to split, you know, just before or at the end of the dearth. one idea would be, like you mentioned, to get a mated queen from treatment-free um, local stock. When you were saying from north, I would actually recommend you want to make sure that it is uh, from uh, Texas, central Texas, preferably, so that it's much more local because invariably those will do better. And it's true across the world. The bees, the queens that are from your local areas, uh they will do a lot better than queens that you might have imported from other regions in the world or the country because they will be best adapted to local cycles of weather and forage and they they will invariably i mean it's been proven by research they will do better okay i can Woo-hoo. see that
0: yeah uh <laughs> now i will get with with you some other time to get some queen risers in the Central Texas
3: area. So, <laughs> oh, Ken wants, well, to
0: steal, he wants to
1: steal your bees, that's what it is.
3: <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, so I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who's uh, another remover. John is a remover, but I've got another remover friend. And he was saying that I'm basically addicted to bees because I want to keep my colonies. I don't want to sell them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just at a point where I'm collecting them. But however, what I would say is that uh, if you're in the United United States and uh, um, in the Americas in general, you can go to b mindfulcom slash resources, and there's a map of um, survivor stock providers uh, Mm -hmm. from, you know, all over the place. So you can see and zoom in on that. It's a Google map, basically, and you zoom in, there's little bees everywhere, and you can see which one is the closest to you. And either that's an educator, or that's a provider of local uh, treatment-free uh, queens or nukes or packages or whatever, it lists in their description what it is that they're doing. Okay. So, if you're interested, there's several in Texas. So,
0: I very will cool be
1: looking. All right. So, we're going to jump over to our first listener question here, real quick. And this one's coming from Bomber Bees. And it says, Is it more typical of bees being kept in a natural manner to be more spicy or more calm?
3: Where are where are they located? It depends. It depends, right? Everything is hyper-local. It's kind of a hard question to answer without having any context.
1: And then... So Bomber Bees is in <laughs> North Alabama.
3: Okay. So um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if what's the underlying reason for this question? Because, for example, somebody that would be asking in Texas would be referring to uh slightly spicier genetics coming from hybridization with africanized genetics and you know for a while those were a lot spicier you still find some find some that are a little bit more defensive mm. but the truly africanized bees are not really uh that prevalent anymore in Texas. So I don't know about North Alabama. However, um Southern United States in general, uh especially towards the, you know, the really extreme south and, and Florida and Georgia and, and all the stuff, they they have some um spicier genetics at times, so much so that the uh APR inspector inspectors were giving guidelines on having to requeen automatically. Uh, what I would say is that you should always try. You should always give them a chance and see. I don't know if the likelihood of having spicier bees is there. Uh, It's probably very uh, local to your area. Uh, But I would say that even if that's the case, I would still give them a chance um, and see what they can do for you. You might be able to work with them. They might not be overly defensive. Um, And if they are and you cannot take it, then at that point, you can requeen with genetics that you're more comfortable with is that i don't know if that answers the question but that's
1: kind of what i'm gonna i'm gonna take the question and i'm so we've gotten a little bit of extra info here and actually it's split into two different parts but so if we took scoot a lot of genetics out of the equation period and we just talked about bees as a hypothetical general keeping them in a natural manner versus keeping them in a more treated manner or you could look at it from the perspective of keeping them in a horizontal top bar hive versus a langstroth hive and i know on the top bar side of it if you're keeping them in a horizontal style hive that is a specifically a top bar hive your bees are oftentimes regardless of their normal state if you take the same colony and you manage them in a langstroth hive but you then move them over to a top bar and you manage them there their reactions in a top bar are oftentimes more calm or more docile absolutely because you're not ripping the lid off you're not exposing the entire colony to all of the light and sun you're not letting all the humidity in or out and all the air in or out and the temperatures so the bees stay more calm as you go through and work a top bar than they do when you work a langstroth so from that perspective of a quote-unquote natural approach they can be more calm if you are doing it in a more natural styled hive so there's that aspect um he did split off though, or she, see, this is hard when it's usernames cause you don't know genders <laughs> or anything else. So we'll say, um, bomber bees did split off a second approach to that and say, um, how they deal with Varroa. So from a natural perspective, how they deal with Varroa is it, uh, it's Steve Miller. Hi, Steve. <laughs> Steve is a he, he says, now we have gender appropriate <laughs> pronouns here. Um, but so, again, in that natural approach to things, do you feel that they're better to deal with Varroa than they are in a non-natural setting? As far as the top bar hives are concerned? I don't know, because see, natural is a very vague, or not vague, but it's it's a very broad topic. Um, if you put it into a top bar, then you could say yes. And from my perspective, yes, my top bar hives seem to do better and have yeah, less mite counts than my... Yes my other size hives. But you know what the other thing of that is too, though? The ones that I leave in the smaller boxes Mm -hmm. and don't put them into the full size four foot top bar. Exactly. Hardly ever have any mites because the colony population is so robust and the space is so small for whatever reason, they seem to do better. But that you're not going to get a honey harvest from that. (laughs) (laughs) There's, There's a trade off on that one.
3: Yeah, and they can swar- get swarmy on you. They can get congested and, and swarm out on you. So um, it's a little bit harder to do uh, space management for that as well. So there's there's trade-offs. It's always based on what your goals are and what you're trying to do. But I would say that because it's so much less stressful, it, it's, it, it's not like top of highs have fewer mites because because of the hive itself. It's all about the management style and the lack, the level of stress that they're exposed to. And I also believe that very often in a tabar hive, you don't have a choice, you don't use foundation. Whereas in, in other kinds of hives, very often people use foundation, whether it be plastic or wax. And especially when it comes to plastic, which is a little bit more rigid, it dampens the communication of the bees because they use vibrations, obviously. And that uh, resonance frequency, resonance is, um, matched up to that of the comb. And so when you introduce a foundation in there, you are really muffling the communication messages, which makes it harder for the colony to, um, to thrive and be efficient at foraging and, and getting the things that they need. So I kind of think that it goes hand in hand and, um, it's both a matter of not stressing the, the colony by exposing the birds nest too much or stressing the bees uh, because they barely notice you and the fact that you're not using foundation. So I think those two things play a role in, in what you've observed. So, And I agree with so, you, by the way.
1: One more redirect here to this, adding spicy back into it. And again, spicy, mm, more temperate bees, temperamental bees. Uh, I don't want to use specific genetics because honestly, if you didn't send them into the lab and have them tested, you have no definitive proof that they have the scoot a lot of genetics, any colony. And that's something that I say a lot when, you know, we, we have on the news around here all the time, somebody was mowing their yard and they got Mm -hmm. attacked and it it was always Africanized bees, killer bees, you know, things like that. And I tell people, you can have the nicest hive in the world. And if you hit them with a lawnmower, they're going to try to kill you. Um, and, and I know that makes you then more afraid of bees in general, but it's the truth. Don't always blame this genetic profile when you don't know that no. it exists, but switching it around and adding spicy back into the mix. Yeah. Do you feel that spicy bees more angry bees, are better at dealing with mites than more right. calm, gentle bees?
3: So, I feel from my experience dealing with you know all kinds of colonies, it does seem to me that the more defensive or a little bit more ornery kind of um, colonies tend to do better with pests and pathogens, diseases, pests and diseases, and that includes the mites. So they're better at it for some reason.
0: And the feral bees will make a lot more honey than yeah. the other bees.
3: Yeah. So, and again, that's all based on your um, local forage and and what Mm -hmm. the weather is doing. But to go back to the defensiveness level, I think there's also a a combination of factors. Uh, There's also the size of your colony, right? A smaller colony will not be as defensive as a bigger one because they don't have as many resources that they can sacrifice as far as guards and, 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 um, you know, bodies that they can lose to stinging. So there's that to keep in mind as well.
1: So one extra little piece on spicy versus calm. One of the ways that the true Scudalotta genetics deals with mites and mite infestations is to overload the brood so that the mites have a place to go and then say peace out and abscond and leave all of the mites capped in with the brood and leave the whole thing to die. They are very prone to absconding and swarming at the drop of a hat. And that is one of their mechanisms on dealing with mites. But it's not an advantageous one for a beekeeper to have if the colony says bye and leaves everybody else to die uh, just so that they can rid themselves of an overmite population.
3: Right. So what I've seen very often is that they might just leave Indeed, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of them leaving a whole bunch of bird behind for some reason. What uh, f- I don't know if it's because my genetics or the bees that I've been keeping are not so um, Africanized in a way, the scutellata genetics, but uh, there might be also a correlation with lack of food. So with the cold front that we had, we noticed that some colonies just picked up and left before the cold came. and. Um, Sometimes they leave when there's a dearth and so in Africa, for example, the, the, the bees, they've evolved to really go in search of the food. So if there's no more forage or not enough in an area, they will, like you said, pick up at the drop of a hat and then just leave. They'll just go and sometimes, you know, uh, hundreds of kilometers to try to find uh, food somewhere else. So there's that to keep in mind as well. So I find it fascinating, though, that, um, you know, the the loading up the brood concepts is a very clever way to to get rid of the load of mites. Um, I saw something from Jake and he said something about um, they had that he had a hive that kept killing queens. They let her kill her off. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was just getting ready to circle back around to that. So that's actually very prominent all across the United States here recently, where you might purchase a queen and put her in there. They let her live long enough to lay a round of eggs. Then they kill her and they raise an emergency queen. And in his case, he had a colony that just continually kept doing it. They would raise a queen, then they would offer, then they would raise a queen, then they would offer. They would just leave her long enough to go through and do that. So I know some certain aspects of this. And, uh, we are going to have a special guest on the show, hopefully next month, fingers crossed, um, to talk more in depth about this, but what are your, what's your opinion on that, Natalie?
3: So it could be a, a a couple of reasons. It could be that they're killing the queens. It could also be that they're cleaning off the dots if they're purchasing queens and uh, you think it's a different queen, but it might actually be the same queen. And or uh, usually when they tend to kill queens, uh, as is a lot of people are not. So not assuming that this is the case for Jake. But some, what I've seen a lot with especially beginning beekeepers or or beekeepers in with Less than a couple, three years of experience is they don't find the queen, they don't see eggs, and they assume the colony is queenless and they give them a queen Uh, because a lot of the programs that um, are training beekeepers in this very town are teaching them that if you don't see queen and if you don't see eggs, that colony is queenless. And so they go and buy a perch, uh, they go and purchase a queen and they try to introduce her. And it turns out that she gets killed because there's a queen. They just didn't know it was there. They couldn't see it, or they couldn't read the other signs of the colony saying that she was there. So, there's that to keep in mind. There's several reasons why that might happen.
1: I'm uh, goading Rachel to call back in. Um, oh. <laughs> she. So, in regards to what you were just saying, I'm back. There we go. All right, Rachel, go <laughs> for it. So, how do you know whether
4: the queen, whether they have killed the queen and said, "No, we don't like you. We're getting rid of you," versus she has come from California to really New York and just doesn't hack the conditions and pegs it, and they're just replacing it that way. How can you tell the difference? Because you're not, it's going to be the luck of the draw if you see them ball up on her and kill her.
3: Right. So, markings help make a difference. Um, you know, if, if you've got a, sometimes that can help make a difference. So, if the existing queen that's in the hive is marked and the new one is not. Uh, and you still have a marked queen after trying to introduce that m- unmarked one, then potentially that could tell you <laughs> that they've gotten rid of the other queen um The other thing is you know if the if the there's um an interruption in the brood um while you've got three days or four days you know. Usually, when I like to when I introduce a queen and I don't think they're going to accept her very easily, I do two things. I'm going to find the existing queen and remove her, uh, and or in this case, since I'm assuming that she's not there, I'm still going to leave that uh, new queen into the cage and uh, give it at least two three days with the candy. Uh, side corked in. So basically all the corks still back in, potentially even a little bit longer, and I'm going to feed to facilitate acceptance. And then as soon as I uh, give the cork, I pop the cork off, I, I could, I mean, I usually try the if I have any doubts, I'll go and check uh, the entire process if I see eggs, if I see um, anything without disrupting them too much, because that really doesn't help the acceptance process. So it's a very delicate thing to try to requeen. So I, I would say it's kind of a matter of being observant and uh, strategize based on how many, uh, how much eggs you are expecting to see if you don't have a queen or if you do have a queen in there. Just kind of get an idea if she's really in there or not and, and, and take it from there. I don't know if that makes any sense. But
4: <laughs> well, it makes sense but it doesn't answer the question. So no, the question is do they choose to kill her or does she die of her own is what i'm saying are they oh, okay uh, yes no you know we're going to let you lay some eggs and then we'll pick the best of those and we'll off you which is what um the other guy was asking versus she's just not functioning well she doesn't cope in the new environment and she dies off and then they go okay we've got to replace her you know you, there's no weird way of telling that is there
3: um it's kind of hard to tell John, do you have any better (laughs) answer (laughs) to that? Because I'm kind of like, well, I've never run into that scenario. Uh, It's fairly hypothetical to me, but I would say that it's it's really hard to tell uh, unless those genetics are remaining. You know, usually when you try to do that, um, that's a colony that's fairly defensive, I'm assuming. So what's your take on it, John?
1: We've had a couple of different instances where we've ran into this. And the first time I ever experienced it was when we hired hired (laughs) when we purchased Hawaiian Queens and they were so not acclimated to our area. We've installed them in all the nukes and every single one of the nukes did this exact process. The queen was there long enough to be accepted and lay around or two a brood. And then she was suddenly gone. Now, in these instances, What I'm suspecting happens is the the queen isn't necessarily dying, but I do think that the bees are like, you're not hacking it. You don't smell like us. You know, something's wrong. But bees are also very, very, very likely to blame things on a queen as well. And that year we had a ton of rain. And so they weren't able to get out and do the things that they wanted to. And oftentimes a colony will kill a queen because Mm -hmm. it's magically the queen's fault that the weather's not cooperating. And they think if they raise a new one, it's like primitive civilization. (laughs) We're going to sacrifice you to the rain gods so that the rain will stop and we can get out and forage. But in Jake's scenario, Ken and I have experienced this, where you buy a queen, you put the queen in, the queen is marked, you know that she's accepted, you check it a week or two later, she's laying, it's great, you got capped a brood, you come back a week or two after that the queen is nowhere to be found and there are emergency queen cells in the colony. And you're like, well, crap. So you go through the process and you call out all of the smaller ones, leaving the two largest, that one emerges. You see her in there, you give her her normal period to go through and do her thing. She comes back, she lays around a brood and then suddenly queen cells are back inside the colony and you can't find the queen again. And they just keep repeatedly doing this process. So in those instances, it could be, that the 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 only way really to tell it would be if the queen is still present while the queen cells are present they're gonna let the virgin queen come out and kill her but if the queen is gone and the queen cells are present the bees have likely offed her themselves and with it happening that quickly it's usually not that she's dying because of some sort of disease or ailment though that can be the case but that's usually not the case you'll also sometimes find the queen dead on the bottom of the hive um but they also will dismember her to get her out of the hive. So it's really a hard thing to, to kind of go through and figure out on that. All right. So I'm going to, we've got several questions here. I was going to actually jump back to Heather. She had asked a question in the chat further up and she's actually called in. So I'm going to open the line up now, Heather, go ahead with your question. All right. So I'm asking about brew bait uh, breaks for mite control. What are different ways to create brood breaks? And can you put a queen in a cage for a period of time to cause an artificial brood break? And if so, what would be the recommended time to keep the queen, quote unquote, locked up?
3: Okay, so definitely one of the easiest way to create a brood break would be to catch your queen and clip her and put her in the not clip her, put her in a clip and then put her in a queen cage and leave her in the colony so that they don't try to requeen themselves. They keep feeding her, but she's not laying. So, and and then I would say you want to make sure you have at least two, three weeks. So it's very hard on the colony, but you, you know, if they got food coming in, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of um, um, they can keep going. Uh, you know, when it's uh, a period of dearth, Also, there's going to be a bird break if you're not trying to push the colony by feeding them artificially um, supplements of pollen, especially, and um, sugar syrup or anything like that. If you're not trying to push them and the dearth is solid enough that um, the the genetics are adapted enough to your local cycles of weather and forage, then they should, if everything goes well, contract back, like they do very much so in Texas. And... uh, slow down the laying or potentially stop it altogether. For several weeks at a time. And at that point, they live off of their reserves and they will resume laying when the nectar flow resumes and the pollen comes back in. So that's a natural bird break right there. And a lot of beekeepers tend to offer supplements that are going to push the queen to keep laying daily. Uh, you know, the expectation is, uh, oh, the queen is supposed to lay, you know, 1,500, 2,000 eggs a day, but she doesn't do that throughout the entire year or the entire season. She does that before the nectar flow to boost up the numbers so that they're ready to leverage what's coming uh, so that they can store for the winter. And then they start slowing down. And in the periods of dearth, they might stop altogether. And that's your bird break. The other way to do this is to uh, obviously split your colonies and let them requeen themselves. You're going to have about a month before the new queen is going to come in and um, uh, start laying eggs on average. Uh, but it's best to do that again uh, in a period of a plenty because they need resources to raid those queens and make sure that they sustain themselves while the queen is going through that process. So there's a couple, three ways of doing bird breaks. And um, I'm sure there are other ways you can do that. Uh, you can remove the queen altogether, And remove the brood, but I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, You would have to put in a queen within a couple of weeks uh, to avoid laying workers from really getting settled into the colony. So uh, obviously when you have a a lack of a queen, that's going to introduce a brood break. Uh, However, I don't really like recommending doing that because you never know when you're going to be able to get your hands on the queen and it really um disrupts the chemical balance in the colony of the chem uh, the communication messages the pheromones uh, it's always healthier to have a queen in the colony so
1: yeah going through do you and, have other strategies well i was gonna say going through and doing that the leaving the queen present so if you've got a colony and you don't want to split it and you want to do a breed uh, brood break leaving the queen present or doing a push-in cage where she's got a small section of comb to do mm-hmm. stuff Either of those types of things are a good scenario because as long as the queen is present and healthy, they're gonna feed her and take care of her, but she's gonna continue producing the queen mandibular pheromone. And the queen mandibular pheromone is what actually inhibits the reproduction organisms inside the workers. So the ovaries and the workers are kind of stunted and shriveled until the queen has been gone long enough that that pheromone fades, then they actually start developing and they have the ability to lay eggs they will sometimes hold off on that process if the queen disappears Mm -hmm. but there's still brood present that'll help prolong that whole thing but if you keep the queen in there it's the same thing as a natural break so right now for central texas we're coming into this natural summer dearth and i filled it just today alone i had three different conversations with two different people in regards to i think my colonies all are queenless and i'm Mm -hmm. i'm telling them if you have seven colonies and all seven colonies look exactly the same,
3: That's not it's, the case.
1: It's not the case. It's, your queen's not gone. They backfill the cells, which means the queen can't lay. Or here in another week or two, there won't be any forage available. And they know that they can't raise any bees if there's no food out there to feed the mouths that they've already got, let alone new ones. So they'll cut back that brood production, creating a natural break. But the queen is still in the colony. She's still moving around. They're still feeding her. They're still grooming her. They're still spreading her pheromones. And that queen mandibular pheromone keeps everybody in check. So doing the brood break and leaving the queen in there, but in a confined resource, uh, cage or push in either way is usually kind of the best way, I would say, to do that.
3: Oh, I was going to say something about uh, what we talked about earlier. I was thinking about the whole uh, killing the queen three times, uh, four times, and just kind of never accepting the queen for very long. I think part of the issue also is when you have genetics that are far apart and you're trying to introduce a queen that's not the same um, subspecies. If you've got, you know, uh, feral and you're trying to introduce uh, Italians or, you know, as the the further apart they are in the subspecies, the less they're going to be willing to accept a queen from that other subspecies. And so that might actually motivate them to try to use her for a while until they can kind of recover a little bit more of the feral genetics or more of the uh, through the, the um, mating of the queen genetics that are to their liking. So you were mentioning Johnny, we were using a queen from Hawaii, and and they were not getting accepting her and and I think that's part of the issue, potentially
1: it definitely could be now one of the deeper subjects that we're not going to go into today but it gets into genetics and it gets into mating if the queen comes out inferior and there's some genetic issue wrong with her or she was not properly mated that is also another reason why sometimes they will off the queen in lieu of trying to raise another queen and sometimes emergency queens are just that. They're an emergency. They're not necessarily the best case scenario. Maybe the larva that they picked was the only option, but it was a little bit too old. And so that queen didn't fully develop the way that she could or should have. And they can sense that. So oftentimes it is better to let them go through that process because there's something they're trying to correct that we're obviously not catching or seeing. So that's another thing to consider sometimes with that. Well,
3: and you raise a good point, John. Uh, There's also the fact that a lot of the Queens that you can purchase are bred uh, usually via grafting. And, um, so two things, the grafting, three things, <laughs> grafting in braiding, and also the lack of time for her to develop her ovaries when she gets mated. So the first point would being, you've got, um, A queen that's being reared from grafting has started its life as a worker bee initially, so that it's, you know, the larvae that's being picked out of the cell needs to be big enough for the beekeeper to to pick it up without destroying it and to see it. So all those hours in the first few hours of her life after hatching from the egg, she's been fed worker jelly instead of exclusively raw jelly. And so I think that makes a difference in the quality of your queen to start with. The other uh, aspect of that would be that um, a lot of the breeding programs end up selecting their favorite queens and their favorite hives, and they tend to Sometimes just kind of rare queens, always from the same lines, and you might end up having some inbreeding, which especially in the United States already kind of a bottleneck in the genetics, and so that's something to consider as well. And by the way, a lot of the spotty bird pattern that you see in colonies can be linked to inbreeding. It's not necessarily just mites, Uh, so that's something to consider. And then the um, the fact that you know these two uh, the grafting and the inbreeding can create, uh, Queens that are not as well mated as well. And so they can, um, they can be, uh, mating with inferior, uh, drones or their genetics are not as good. And then that influences their, their breeding pat their brood pattern. But then the other, the third point being, um, a lot of the suppliers of Queens will, uh, as soon as she lays two, three eggs and they can tell within the first few days that she's laying, they will cage her and then ship her and or um have her wait in that cage until you know they can sell them to people or they bank them and that prevents the queen from developing her ovaries as well so her she's not going to be as good of a queen than if she had been allowed to lay for a couple 3 weeks before she was uh, harvested and caged to be sold so you know the, there's and so many things that we don't begin to understand about the superorganism. I think that the bees are very uh, capable of discerning all those elements and they might decide that that's not good enough. And they'll use her to try to bring up the genetics. And every time they go through a round of killing the new one, uh, that's going to improve the genetics and bring in diversity from the mating with the drone. So that's kind of the way I look at it as well.
1: All right, so here's the the lineup. We've got two more listener questions on here. Then we're going to let poor Ken have a chance to talk, and oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and listen. then we'll we'll circle back around here because I know Ken had a lot of questions too. So um, the next up on here is Jake, and then we're going to go over to uh, the very long CVV followed by a string of numbers question here. So Jake <laughs> has a great question that could um, this is one of those things that have taken black and white is one of the contradictions in beekeeping. And there's a lot of different variables that go into it, but just ask bluntly and simply, what is your time period between inspections, Natalie? Um, Do you inspect Uh, once a week? Do you inspect every couple of weeks, um, once a month? Like what is your average inspection interval?
3: So like, just like everything with beekeeping, it depends. So I could go down that road and tell you, it depends what I'm doing, what are my goals, what the season is, uh, what kind of, um, uh, hive I've got, uh, all kinds of parameters. But what I would say as a general rule Uh, and also what I'm doing with my bees, right? If I'm uh, trying to grow colonies, I will be in there more often than if I'm just maintaining them and and letting them do their thing. So it kind of depends on all those factors. I would say that in the in the general configuration for like a backyard beekeeper, which I'm not anymore, really, uh, I would say that you it would behoove you to go in in the spring after the weather is warmed up uh to kind of check see make sure that everything's fine they still have some resources the nectar flow hasn't hit yet uh, so you want to make sure they have enough to get by until the nectar flow hits and they're not brooding up too hard so that if a cold front would come in they would starve to death because they're going through all their resources and they cannot keep that brood warm so that big inspection when it's warm enough you can kind of take a look at your colony i don't like to go in deep through the brood's nest too much. I try to stay on the outer edges, uh, whether it's a Langstroth or a Tabar and kind of assess the resources, see how much is in there and then kind of get an idea if there's a laying queen or or signs of uh, balance in the uh, hive and not go through the entire brood's nest and close them back. Um, And then after that more invasive in a way, inspection in the spring, I would say as a backyard beekeeper, I wouldn't go in there more than every three weeks or so. Uh, I will go in more often because now we're raising bees, but that's a different story. As As a backyard beekeeper, I don't need to do that. I would only do it if I had a specific need for it. So... Uh, the other thing I want to take a look at at specific periods in time is when the nectar flow has been going for a while and I'm expecting, you know, uh, some congestion, I'm going to go back in and I'm going to k- take a look and I'm going to because I am i don't let my bees necessarily swarm. I try to uh leverage the swarming instinct for my own increase in numbers Uh, so they do get a brick break, but i manage it so that i collect that before it escapes my apiary. so i'll go in and i'll do some space management and at that point it'll be a little bit more invasive i'll add either drone resources and or space empty space um, and try to get them to to get distracted from having to um, swarm on me without me being prepared so Um, at that point, that buys me a little bit more time. So I can go back in in three weeks, four weeks and see how much they've grown. And at that point, if the nectar flow is still strong, that will inform my decision. If the nectar flow is still super strong, I might go back in a little bit earlier than those three or four weeks and just kind of check in a couple of weeks, knowing that I've done space management and that they shouldn't be Uh, congestion and wanting to swarm before that. And I'll just kind of adjust my inspection frequency to that. But I would say as a general rule, um, I would say a big inspection in the spring that determined that everything's fine. And then every three weeks is about the inspection uh, frequency that I would advise uh, unless you're doing something specific.
1: So on my end of this, again, as you said, it's all a matter of circumstance and what you're doing and everything else. And your so, goals. Yes. and your goals, absolutely. So for my Langstroth hives, actually for any hive, Langstroth and top bar both. Coming out of winter, the first inspection in the late winter early spring is top to bottom. I look at absolutely everything. I tear the whole thing apart. My top bars get completely rearranged. The honey gets moved to the very front. The brood gets moved to the middle. Um, I don't want there to be a wall to stop the bees whenever it comes to that, you know, boxes may be rotated, frames will be rotated, all kinds of stuff happens, but that's my, okay, we have to do a full assessment of how well did you do over winter? What are you looking like getting ready for spring? So it's very invasive. Now on the Langstroth side of that, after that, I already have boxes of drawn comb and I have boxes of foundation that can be drawn. So when the nectar flow really gets going, I'll start off with my deep and I'll give them a medium of drawn comb so they've got that room to expand. But then I might put another box on top of it of empty foundation and allow them then as the flow continues to draw that out. And then when we hit the main nectar flow, I take all my boxes of all my drawn comb, I stick it on the hives, and in this instance, both due to weather and other circumstances, I haven't looked at those hives. I've looked at them once in a in like two months. So um, I put stuff out there, a month went by, I added extra boxes, another month has gone yeah. by, and I'm not still going back out to the colony for another week or so. But on okay. the top bars, it's a different story. I check my top bars every single week during that initial growth oh, wow. phase because As they're building new comb on the end, I have to make sure they're not cross-combing and they're drawing it straight. But that's Mm -hmm. the catch. And that's what you said, Natalie, about you're not going all the way to the brood nest. I'm opening up the back of the hive. I'm looking in to see where the last comb was. I'm taking that comb and I'm moving it back one bar or straightening Mm -hmm. it if need be. And I close it back up and walk away. But I've Mm -hmm. still touched that hive every week during that growth phase. Now, if they've already got drawn comb, that's a different story. If, they've, if they're wall-to-wall drawn comb and it's all empty, I let them do their thing. There's no point in getting in there and messing with it. So that's a, all, that's a good point. Yeah, it's all circumstantial. And that's what I wanted to point out. Every colony is different. Every beekeeper is different. Every flow is different. And yeah. it's all about what is your intent for this inspection? What mm-hmm. are you trying to get out of it or what are you trying to accomplish? And focusing just on that. Every time you open your colony, you do not need to go top to bottom and look no. at every single frame.
3: Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, you can just provide some space at the back end of a top bar or uh, add some space on the top. I like, personally, because I'm growing bees and I'm trying to leverage that swarming instinct to my advantage when I'm ready, I um, I will kind of, as soon as the weather is permitting and the str- strength of the colony is permitting it, I will actually, in the top bar, I will interspace some empty bars or some drunk home, like you mentioned, but instead of putting it in the back of the hive or on top of a langstroth, I will actually intersperse it in the bird's nest and bring up some of those resources uh, to try to expand that bird's nest. My goal is to grow bees. And, and so that's kind of what I try to do. And at that point, I can forget them because they've got the space to not get congested that honey is not going to be forming a wall like I do what you say as well I bring the crystallized honey to the front of the hive or harvest what's left once I know the nectar flows right around the corner and um, I'm just kind of always kind of keeping in mind what my goal is and that's the key right there what is your goal when you're going into your colony you shouldn't be doing it at a frequency that's preset you should have a plan and understand the biology of the superorganism so that you can leverage it to your advantage and fulfill your goals
1: excellent all right so are you ready i'm going to we're going to queue you up for a big one here this is going to oh take my. all of your all of your natural beekeeping skills <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> okay so the question is quote unquote I have recently done an alcohol wash to check for varroa mites and I found 23 mites in my count. Mm -hmm. I don't like killing my bees and I really don't want to have to use chemical strips to control the mites. So Mm -hmm. please give me a few options. Um, Also, I enjoy listening to the Hive Jive Weekly. Thanks y'all and have a great evening. So how in a natural beekeeping perspective without using the chemical, be it organic or um, essential oil type strips how would you combat a colony that you find with 23 mites on your mite count
3: okay so several things i would say A high number of mites doesn't necessarily mean your colony is not doing well. Those thresholds of three mites per you know uh, cup of bees uh, were set up uh, artificially low to pander to I'm sorry uh, pesticide companies that were selling their treatments. And so in reality, colonies um, can do better uh, can do pretty well until they hit I think the thresholds that were more. realistic were like 15 or something, if I remember well. But what I would say is that uh, we've had uh, less anyway, has had colonies that he has witnessed with very high levels of mites that actually were tolerant of those mites. And and in that case, until you see signs of serious issues and or um, um, failure to thrive or, or disease or, you know, deformed wing virus or any things like that. Um. It doesn't necessarily mean that the colony cannot um, sustain and be tolerant of a higher level of mites. At 23, that's a little high, but I'm not necessarily worried about that as long as the colony is still doing well. Uh, What I would say though, if you are worried and you don't want to use treatments and you want to prevent your colony from going uh, down before you have a time to intervene, I would say at that point, what you want to do is um, Purchase a queen from a treatment-free local beekeeper that uh, is reputable, and then um, and then at that point you can requeen if you're really worried about those mites, and that's kind of one way to do it. The other way to do it is that you can do a split and um, take the old queen away with a small amount of food and brood and, and comb, and uh, really let the new colony go through a bird break, that's gonna really help out with that. And uh, the colony that's got the old queen on smaller amount of resources might actually recover uh, from that infestation and and do a lot better. So there's ways to do this. I would say the other thing that you wanna do is stack the deck in your favor. Uh, That means anything that you can do in the integrated pest management strategies, um, you you can use as many of those strategies under the, um, not reaching the level of treatments, obviously, but just kind of uh, natural comb, low stress levels, good nutrition, uh, good genetics on the queens, um, and just kind of uh, sanitary uh, cycling out of the old comb. That's very important, by the way. Uh, too many beekeepers keep comb that, that's too dark in the bird's nest, and that really leads to a host of problems. Uh, so I would say that if you have all the cards in your deck that's helping the colony thrive uh, a high number of mites might actually not be an issue at all Uh, it's all about a balance uh, of stressors and if you have uh, a little bit more mites and they're tolerant of it uh, very often that's because the other parameters in your equation are making up for
1: it okay so i'm going to jump in real fast and uh, clarify on the the mite counts it's not the physical number of mites it's a percentage when you do the equation so two percent is what they li- they make that threshold as is two percent or three percent depending on the time of year but mm-hmm. in this instance for 23 mites if the actual wash was done correctly you used half a couple bees you have in theory 300 bees in there if you do the equation on that that would come out to seven point six six percent on your mite right. count so Um, all of the numbers that you mentioned are correct. I just wanted to clarify it's, it's percent, not number of mites. Um, now, so let's say in this instance, your colony, Natalie, we'll, we'll put you in this, in, in these shoes. So you go out and you have a colony that let's say it is struggling for whatever reason. You're noticing that the population doesn't seem as much. They're not bringing in as much food. The brood nest looks a little spotty. And so say you do a mite check and you come up with these numbers, what would be your top three things to do in order? of Uh,
3: I would first assess. Well, I would ask myself first, what's the uh, the the season? What is their nectar flow? Is there a lot of resources out there? I would kind of try to figure out what the circumstance for, for this is. So that I can evaluate if it's truly struggling because of that or if it's because of other factors that uh, pile on to the issue with the mites. If I do, let's say. It's, it's full of mites and it's not thriving, and they should be because there's enough nectar and they're not supposed to be stressed. I would, uh, I would definitely try to condense the bees and decrease the amount of resources into the hive uh, as far as comb they have to protect. And, and I would feed them and I would potentially um, requin them at that point. I would definitely try to see if I, that, that would help. If I'm really worried about that colony, I would requin them.
1: Okay. So you would, you would do almost the same approach that I do whenever it comes to hive beetle infestation or a wax moth infestation. Those are signs that the colony is getting weak. They can't defend everything. And Mm -hmm. I would reduce them if they're multiple boxes, I reduce them to one. If it's already one or two boxes, I reduce it to a nuke. So you would actually reduce the colony down and allow them time to go through and, and kind of rebuild that.
3: Yeah. And potentially let them uh, go through a brood break if they have to and just kind of cast a swarm at that point. Um, I think that that's not a bad thing if they get congested to kind of like let them figure it out and and go through a brood break and and, uh, hopefully catch the swarm (laughs) before it escapes the colony. But um, that's a natural way to get things out of their system and really condensate the resources and putting more bees in the box and really minimizing the space helps. But if that's not enough, like like I said, uh, the ultimate for us uh, is to get um, a untreated local queen However, I would say we don't do that very lightly because very often what we see is that you you can observe some um, some um, problems and or problems with mites, which to me are actually more of a symptom of a bigger issue. Uh, that's a symptom of stress. That's a symptom of poor genetics uh, and um, and or um, lack of nutrition. And the the way I, I do that is. So I I just kind of use requeening as a last resort because sometimes when you do that, when you condense and you provide good nutrition, the colony turns around and then all of a sudden that problem is not a problem anymore.
1: If you were to requeen, would you put in an already mated queen or would you take a bar and comb of eggs and larva from a colony that you know has good results and insert that either
3: or so that depends on my goals right if i have the time and the luxury to wait and and i i i want to get them to just kind of um go through the expense of resources which in itself is fairly stressful right because then you're removing that queen you're giving them a fresh uh comb of eggs they've got to wait another month and they're already stressed out circumstances and so I, I, you know, I would evaluate that very carefully and I would probably feed them at what I consider emergency feeding in that case so that they can do that and, and feed those queens as well as possible and, and get a better chance of success. But, um, you know, if I'm trying to rescue them faster and I'm just kind of uh, in a mode where I cannot really wait that month, then I will use the m- mated queen that I will have purchased. Uh, the other right, thing i yeah, like right. to do, actually, is to, uh, instead of giving them a frame of eggs, is uh, leverage another colony that's getting swarming, that's got swarm cells. And then I will give them those resources. Okay.
1: Um, Mr. Ken, are you still awake? Are you doing good? Oh, yeah. I'm, I've, she, uh,
0: Natalie's dang near answered all the questions I had been listening. But now, yeah. Natalie, I have a swarm. Now, I caught this swarm back in April. Uh-huh. Still in the box, still in the pasture. And it's in an eight frame deep box. That's mm-hmm. all my traps are. And, uh, the other day I was going to go out and lift it up and, and, uh, move it. And I didn't put a, uh, entrance on this one. I just got two half inch holes for the bees to go in and out of. And I got up there, put my ladder up there and, uh, kind of thumped it a little bit and, these are little bitty, little small bees, and they're real mm-hmm. dark. And John says, Oh, there you can't tell that from of. But when they come out, it looked like they came out in pressure, like a garden hose under oh. pressure coming out of there. And when they come out, they went straight to my face, and I'm sitting there. Yeah, these are a little bit on the testy side. Uh-huh. But that box, once I got it down. Has probably, now they've been in since April. It's full. They've drawn, Mm -hmm. I have, when I put my my traps up, I'll put one, I say I'll put a empty frame up against the wall, then I'll put comb, then foundation, then the rest of them are empty frames with just a starter strip. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have filled it with comb and almost filled it with honey. And I'm sitting there. These bees are going to Mason. I have a place in Mason, and it's away from everybody. These bees are going with me up there and because they are on the testy side, but they are some honey producers. I didn't test them for mites, but…
3: If they're thriving, that's…
0: I know. That's the way I looked at it yeah this is a, these are some growing you know, and that may be answering the guy who's was asking about the feral bees, and you know I don't know up in Alabama northern Alabama, they're not worried about the scoot a lot of genetics because that's not hot and dry. It's probably cool and maybe damp. I don't know if northern northern Alabama's up in the mountains or in the hills, hmm. So that's a hard one to call, but uh, the scoot a lot of genetics. He Steve says it's humid. It, it it, yeah, I'm sure it's humid. Uh, the scoot a lot of genetics. Yes, they it makes them more defensive, but they are some honey producing. And by the way, once you get that second gen queen, a lot of times they are some tremendous egg layers. We've got a couple that are just, oh, man, just full frame. I've
1: tried to, I have tried to uh, beat this into his head as much as possible. But anytime you have a new queen, which is what he's then considering a second gen, I had a queen and she got replaced or I replaced her. Anytime you've got a brand new queen, she's going to be a tremendous egg be because egg-layer. she's young and she's, <laughs> she's vervolent, you know, she's, she's got all this energy. Um, that's the case for prolific. Thank you. Yeah. That's the case for anything. So a second gen queen is not the, the right way to say that it's a new a queen, young, young queen, because um, okay. because you don't want to set the, the mindset that any queen I make, as a second generation or a third generation is going to lay more than the first generation because in all reality when that original queen was a brand new young mated queen she was also a tremendous egg layer but you caught her in year two or three because you caught her from a swarm right and that's always the older queen and she's going to be just like your chickens the older they get the less eggs they lay so if you replace that third year queen with a first year queen, yes, it's going to be a tremendous difference in the amount of eggs, but it doesn't have anything to do with generation. It has to do with age.
3: Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. I'm not the spring chicken anymore.
1: <laughs> 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 Natalie's birthday so, uh, what was I, on world Bee day. Like how appropriate is that? To be born on world Bee day.
3: That's kind of uh, why I got so excited about organizing that uh, webinar uh, for World B-Day every year, because it's like, it's my birthday. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, and you know, there's three things that what you said made me think of. The first one is that. Uh, local bees, wherever you are, they tend to be a little bit smaller and and a lot more adapted to the local cycles and and of weather, but also mostly to the flora, to the the forage that's out there, the type of flowers. And so they're going to be a lot more productive and and adapted and efficient at collecting nectar and making honey. Uh, The size part of it, I would say, because they are not kept on foundation, they're naturally more... A, a little bit smaller. Uh, if you let the bees uh, raise their own comb,
1: mm-hmm.
3: when uh, when possible, they will have cell sizes of all kinds. But mostly, the worker cells will be a lot smaller than that foundation. That's five point four millimeters. And I think that at four. millimeter or 4.7 millimeters, that's quite a bit smaller. So you're going to be able to see a a, a smaller sized bee. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're um, Africanized. It just means that they've been raised on foundation less and that they're local uh, feral bees potentially. So. yeah, and then the, I don't remember what the third point I had for you, but basically the they're, oh yes, because they've been doing their thing on their own, chances are they are actually feral, as opposed to being wild. And when I make the distinction between feral and wild, as um, wild would be escaped from managed apiaries, as opposed to feral that's never been managed. And I would say that in that case, um, they might not be used to being manipulated or or messed with and they would come out swinging but what happens is from the ones that i have collected in owl boxes right uh things are fairly testy initially when you try to get them down when you bring them home and then as they settle in and they get used to you going in and met and and inspecting them on a you know two, three weeks basis, maybe four weeks, then they will start getting a little bit used, I've noticed, to being managed, and they won't be having those reactions, which tells me that's not necessarily genetic.
1: Are you trying to tell me that that evil owl box that tried to murder me 30 foot up in a tree is now not not so bad?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty mean to us, but it's actually a lot better now, yes. And it's still, you know, it's still in the owl box, actually.
1: Oh, good Lord, there's no telling, but I'm, I'm so curious to see what the inside of that thing looks like.
3: Yeah, I haven't had the time to go and cut it out. And so I'm I'm right around the corner of being able to do that. So we'll see.
1: We've got two more questions we're going to jump to. Um, OK, so going back here real quick, we're going to jump back up to Rachel. Rachel has a question. And, and honestly, this is... It's kind of a fun question, but she doesn't really need to to worry about it because she sucks because she doesn't have to deal with mites. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, yep. and I say that with love because Australia does not have the varroa mite. It's like the only place that doesn't have it. So that is awesome. And she's calling back in. What I can't say you suck without you being able to defend yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, but
4: as as one of the other guys said one day, we'll probably get it eventually. So we sort of need to, you know. Like and Tom Decuna. Seeley, in one of his books, was saying, you know, when he went and checked the feral colonies that had fifteen years of natural selection and that adapted to the varroa we don't want to wait and lose fifteen years of bees dying doing it the hard way. And I've heard there's one technique where you freeze. Patch of brood and mm-hmm. then see how long it takes them to clean out. Is there any recommendation? Like, do you freeze a whole frame or do you just freeze mm-hmm. like a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter patch? And how quick do they clean it out? Means that they're hygienic and therefore more likely to be, you know, good hygienic bees in the future for other things.
3: It's liquid nitrogen, right? Tom? I, yeah. I think they put a little circle probably about. Uh, so in centimeters, I would say about seven, no, about eh, eight, nine, 10 centimeters um, diameter. And um, they will pour that, You know, they'll put a like a muffin mold over the brood, capped brood, and then they'll pour that liquid nitrogen and they'll kill that brood. And then they'll put that frame back into the hive and let the bees clean it up because it's dead bodies. And they'll be able to measure based on the percentage of cells being uncapped and bodies removed, how hygienic that colony is at pulling out that dead brood. So obviously the higher the hygienic behavior, the better it is for the bees.
1: Imagine a, like the top of a spray can. Um, if you were going to do spray paint, I'm assuming you guys have that down there. That's about the size you're upside down, but you should know what that (laughs) is. So I'm just playing. (laughs) So if you, if you take the cap off of like a, you know, a hairspray bottle or a spray paint bottle, and imagine that cylinder as the size, and then they cut the other end of it out. So you've got just an open tube and they push that down over the top of the brood and then spray the center of that or pour the liquid nitrogen in the center of that. That's only the bigger area that you need to do. You want all the rest of the healthy brood to stay around it. Yes. So then you can see how quickly they go through and they notice this and they remove it and they should do it fairly quickly. Like You should be able to come back in you know, a maximum of 48 hours and see that they are doing something and not that it's just still there. One of the other things that you can do is, even though you guys don't have mites, you do still have different diseases. And if your bees are hygienic, they should notice when there is some sort of distress with the larva. And when they do that, they will uncap either little portions or the entire cell and you get what's called bald brood, where you can actually see the pupating larva because they've removed the capping from the top of it. If you notice your colony is doing that, that is a hygienic trait or a hygienic behavior. So that's also another way, without having to purposely kill a section of your brood, to check and see if your bees already have some of these pre-existing conditions or habits, traits.
3: Yep. And then there's something else uh, I read uh, not that long ago. The Australian government is importing some um, queens or sperm from the Netherlands that is from genetics that are mite-tolerant, resistant. And they're bringing it over to, in effect, prepare the bees for a potential invasion of mites and kind of introduce those genetics. I, I call that a little bit like a inoculation of uh, like vaccination of the population. So there's a plan, I don't don't remember what that article was. Les and I were talking about it in the last chat with the mindful beekeepers. So check it out and see if you can find something about that because I think that's a great idea.
1: Oh, you know, I can so piss everybody off right now. If we wanted to flip this around into real world scenarios, Mm -hmm. we could say that Varroa mites aren't real. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and your vac- your your vaccination is a hoax. They're really trying to inject <laughs> your funny. hives with microchips so they know where That's, all the colonies are, <laughs> and they're
3: gonna be your bees are gonna be magnetized. <laughs>
1: sorry, I <couldn't>, guys. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't resist. Sorry. Um, all right. So on the same topic of varroa mites, this one actually comes back over to your last natural beekeeping segment where. You had Les as your guest, and Les had mentioned at one point that he uses cedar in his smoker as a form of mite control, but he did not elaborate on that whenever mm-hmm. he mentioned it and then he just kind of moved off of it. So Bomberbees would like to know what type of cedar, how this process works, and you know how somebody else could potentially do this.
3: So I was going to say, first of all, Cabrat, so when when Les talks about that, he's done it Uh, probably the last time, about 15 years ago or 10 years ago. (laughs) And he has never done that ever since. Um, The key is that he's noticed that just like creosote bush in New Mexico had some miticidal properties. Um, He would, if he had a colony that was highly infected with mites back in the days when it was still really lethal, which it's not really that much anymore, uh, I find, with our colonies anyway, he would, um, as a last resort, kind of take it, the, the creosote bush or the cedar bark or the juniper and put it in the smoker as the fuel. And then he would puff, he said, 30 thick smoke puffs into the hive uh, and just kind of let them get exposed to that and let the mites fall, kind of a treatment. Uh, And he has since then changed his practice because he no longer does that because it is in effect a treatment. And what happens is that you're knocking back the population of mites and the pressure from the pathogens instead of letting your colonies kind of find different ways to fend off and thrive, despite the presence of the mites. Uh, So things, again, like we talked about earlier, you can also help them along with minimizing the stress, keeping clean comb, all the stuff, right? And then instead now, he no longer does that. He will take the mitigation uh, interventions from integrated pest management strategies, and he will, as a last resort, requeen with local survivor treatment-free stock instead but you know there's a possibility no however that it is considered a treatment just uh, you know just like a uh, oxalic acid would be
1: yes and there's also I don't remember who shared it with us um, uh, now that I said that I think I do remember who shared it with us but so there was also a Russian beekeeper that had some videos online of taking I want to say nettle like stinging nettle um, or another plant, so don't quote me on this because it's, it's it's very foggy at the moment, but taking yeah. a plant that naturally produces formic acid and yeah. putting it into the hives on the top of the bars as a method of doing the same thing as the formic strips. And somebody was asking like, you know, how effective is that? Is that something that you should do? Does it work? And, you know, I, all I can do is shrug my shoulders at that. I'm not necessarily yeah. okay. sure, um, but it is still interjecting something That would not naturally be in there to combat the mites and if you're trying to be natural that's a different approach
3: well it's not by dogma it's not by you know uh, being extreme it's just that there's a reasoning behind the not using that kind of uh strategies is to kind of let the bees get strong enough and and figure it out on their own. And if, if, you know, mites, again, I will say it, are a symptom of a bigger problem. And usually it has to do with the queen and the genetics of that queen. And so if you have issues with mites and high levels of mites and or failure to thrive and and disease expressing itself, very often it's linked back to the queen. Queens are the biggest uh, cause of colony failure before mites, actually, uh, Dr. Tarpey's research was, uh, no, was it Dr. Tarpey? Yeah, I think Dr. Tarpey mentioned that in his present, one of his presentations. So the research uh, is clear. A lot of uh, people will will say the mites are the worst, um, the biggest danger to the colony. The real biggest danger to the colony is the queen and its quality. And, and, and the rest is really a symptom of that. Um, underlying cause as far as I'm concerned. So I'm not trying to be extreme when I say, you know, you know, you shouldn't use or or I, we don't use treatments of any kinds. We don't try to knock it back that way. It's just because there's another issue that needs to be looked at uh, before treatments
1: are used. Very good. Mr. James Spooner, you are live, sir.
2: Hey, hey, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me. I'll uh, tell you, hey, from South Georgia, uh, near the Florida line, where the scoot a lot of genetics are, are present every day. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. something we, we deal with. But my question is if for a beginner beekeeper who maybe started out with not necessarily thinking about the, the treatment free in the natural way, but is interested in possibly going that direction, Mm -hmm. how do you kind of change gears without being worried that every, all of them are going to be taken over by the devil might? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> right. That's an excellent question actually. Um so I would say the first thing you need to do is really to focus on the quality of bees that you have. Um very often what we we see here in Texas is people will import packages from Georgia that are Italians that are treated and and then they'll try to set them up and go treatment free. So that doesn't work <laughs> yeah. at Ken, all. Ken Milan. <laughs> Ken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, Kent, Did you do that, oh, Ken? I've,
0: I've got Carney I've got Russians. Now, Russians are just about as testy as the feral uh, bee that has the scoot a lot of genetics in them. The feral Texas, or as John calls them, the red-headed mutts.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, Russians
0: are red. Russians are pretty. Uh, they're pretty
1: aggressive. Now, so my, my point was, Ken has ordered his fair share of packages <laughs> of quote unquote sweet Georgia bees.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. The sweetest oh, yeah. peaches. Um, the problem is that you end up with queens, uh, with colonies that are susceptible to disease if they're not being treated. They're it's basically the definition of survivor stock is treatment-free stock, meaning that they can thrive on their own. They don't need to rely on any kind of medication to knock back numbers of mites or prop them up. If you have bees that are treated, they're not survivor period they're going to need those medications to do well generally speaking so that would be your first starting point making sure that you know where you're getting your bees from if you already have bees and they are the treated you know they were you know so when you're purchasing bees you can ask your supplier the following two questions what do you treat your bees with because what happens is that they might not tell you they treat if you ask them, do you treat? They might say no. Uh, And then because they think oxalic acid is not a a, a harmful treatment. But if you ask them, what do you treat your bees with? They will tell you. Uh, If they don't, they will tell you as well. So you'll know. Also, you can ask them if they raise their bees locally. Uh, Because if they come back from pollination contracts and and traveling from commercial beekeepers and they were not raised locally, you're also... Um, decreasing your chances of success with treatment-free. And then if you catch swarms or do cutouts or removals, um, a percentage of them will be wild, escaped from apiaries. Some of them, a smaller percentage, will be treated apiaries and others not treated apiaries. So you're getting a higher chance of uh, potentially having good bees, good genetics. The other thing that I would do is I would uh, definitely, at that point, give them a chance to show you what they can do. But if you already have bees and they were purchased from treated uh, and and um, non-local genetics, um, I would, you know, Italians are not very resilient. I would stay away from Italians if you're trying to go treatment free. And I would try to go with local genetics and find a provider in your area and then requeen those colonies and then try to go with those new genetics to go uh, treatment-free. And that means not treating. That's the only way to go treatment-free if you don't treat. Uh, If you're worried about losing uh, colonies, what I would say is that even if you treat your bees, it doesn't mean they're going to survive anymore. Uh, I think this the Bee and Foreign Partnership show that uh, they don't survive. Uh, in higher numbers. And actually, uh, some people will argue that the treatment-free bees will survive a lot better, especially if they're locally adapted. So that's not going to be your magic bullet. What happens is that you're, you're dealing with a symptom of a bigger underlying issue. Uh, the other aspect of that, aside from genetics, which is the key, uh, is to educate yourself Uh, And be really good at uh, reading your colonies, reading your frames, seeing signs of problems and and just understanding what's happening in your colony and be able to intervene earlier rather than later so that you can catch it on time to remedy the situation. So in in the end, it makes you a better beekeeper.
2: Okay. Well, thank you.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. And the other thing I would say, uh, have more than two or three colonies <laughs> so that if anything happens, you have some left that you can split back up in the spring. But in yeah. the end, it will um, be cheaper. Yeah, it will be cheaper to go treatment free than, than uh, getting some of those uh, inferior genetics.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting you said that about the, uh, about the packages. When I started out, I only purchased two packages and they did not last. But yes. I'm up to eight colonies now that I've raised myself.
3: Oh, very good! Congratulations,
2: and and uh, so far my 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 checks have been really low.
3: That's um, great, and get help from people that know how to do treatment free as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. And speaking of help, I do want to. I, I said I told this to John one time in the email before, but I want to tell him and Ken again that how much the podcast helped those of us who was really getting started during the pandemic when the beekeeping (laughs) classes were were canceled the one i was going to was canceled and the the only person i had access to as a mentor then you know they didn't want to be around other people understand them but you know i'm not knocking them on that but the the hive jive has has just been invaluable to me um as
0: a beginner beekeeper
3: thank you yeah yay john yay ken Y'all are awesome. And I, I've heard the same thing from many people. So that's awesome.
1: Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Well, golly. <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Oh, of course. Of course. Ken thinks it's going to end. <laughs> he's gotta, oh, he's okay. got to. Oh, okay. I'm just
0: playing. Well, I was wanting to, uh, Natalie, did you hear the gal, <laughs> Johnna from, uh, From uh, uh, Slovenia? The Aja hives, yes. (laughs) Yes. I want those Slovenian bees. All I have to do is sit there with a cigar in my mouth and blow smoke on them, and they come out and they high-five
3: you and all that kind of stuff.
1: He so wants the I, true Carniolans is what he's talking about. True carniolans.
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't do I don't do breeds of bees and and you know I don't get for the fancy queens and all that stuff. I get my local bees and I watch what they're doing, and that's all I do. I don't get Carniolans. No, I don't. No. I tried, but I I don't see the point no,
0: personally. I understand that too. And the uh, mm-hmm. the swarms that we're getting now. This one swarm I was telling you about. This raising so much. It comes from a. Ranch over here at one time, there was a uh, probably 30 years ago, there was a big uh, beekeeper in that area who was very uh, raises very well known in Llano County. That's all I'll say. <laughs> and, and uh, and John already knows who it is, but uh, he had a lot of hives in there, and uh, apparently, probably quite a few of them went feral, but the same we we opened up let's say that has clearing trees in there and the two different trees uh when the dozer hit them the bees come out and just attacked uh, attacked them yeah and so we went in there and took the bees out of those trees and they were the little just like i say and they're a smaller bee yeah. and so very aggressive now as, as we worked with them a little while they calmed down and john says oh the longer you work with them the calmer they get or yeah they the give up aggressive. at some point yeah yeah mm-hmm. less aggressive as they are but uh i think if you can find the true feral bee, uh i'm getting where the more i look at that uh the more i'm sitting there saying yeah maybe so that's what we ought to be doing but uh And then I go out there and open up one of those colonies and the whole colony attacks me. Uh, It looks like uh, 80,000 bees and there's only 20,000 in there and they're all in my face. And uh, yeah, it's a, but I don't want to queen them. I just stay out of them a little more.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, to just put a, put a little reminder out there for everybody. Natural beekeeping is not the same thing as front porch beekeeping. <laughs> not nope. not opening your colonies is not quote unquote natural beekeeping. That is having bees living in something and letting them basically go feral, which is not beekeeping. It's maybe bee borderline having. bee having, maybe um yeah (laughs) but just for the record you still have to go manage your colonies even if you're doing natural beekeeping (laughs) yeah
3: Yeah. no and that's an excellent point join because uh, a lot of people assume that's what natural treatment free beekeeping is um it's it's not T- doing anything to your bees and letting them die that's absolutely not the case and uh we 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 actually have a very low loss rate on our colonies like even with that winter uh Snowmageddon we had in Texas we had, we were about 10 between 10 and 15% uh losses which i think is not bad considering how bad that week was um but it's not, we do take care of our bees and we do uh, manage them actively and we keep an eye on them. Uh, alternatively, I would say I do have a worry, a couple worries. One of them is about eight years old and it's it's just kind of, I've never really done anything. I've not treated, inspected or fed and they're doing their thing. And so... That still works, but you're taking a risk. You know, every year a colony of bees will swarm and very often that swarming mechanism will leave the remaining colony with not enough bees and and they might have after swarms and then the colony might end up dying. Uh, so there's a risk, there's a risk of, um, pests and disease and stress from lack of nutrition. And if you're putting it in a hive that's not well insulated, you might lose them. And, uh, so if you've got bees in a box, it, it, it becomes our responsibility to take care of them, but not, uh, to micromanage them. The bees know better what, what to do than we do.
1: The bees know best. Hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and Ken, I have one of those Asia hives. I got one Did from you? from yeah. yeah, a Texan that made it himself. And mm-hmm. I've got if you're I don't know if you have one, but uh, if you're interested, we have it at the at the Bee Bus on Nettie Brown Road.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that. I want try. Mm-hmm. I've been wanting to try one.
3: What I would say uh, is that it's, uh, it's, it's great for what Slovenian people are doing with and putting in their houses and all that stuff. My big stick is getting hives into the hands of people that would not necessarily have the means and um, mm-hmm. resources to get one. So I want to keep it mm-hmm. very simple. Hence the the top yeah. bar hives and the plans on our website that are available for free. Uh, anybody can make them or know somebody that can help them cut the wood. Five pieces and 30 sticks of wood. That's basically it. And it's super cheap. So my goal is to really make it as simple as possible and as cheap as possible. And Azure hives are not that.
0: No, they're not. No. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that was one thing that we pretty much figured out after going through and talking to her was how the uh how the management style of it was actually more intensive than a regular langstroth even because of the confined space and the greater need for manipulation because of that confined space you can't just plop another box on the top like you can the others
3: Mm mm-hmm yeah, yeah. You, you'd have to do space management and at that point you're playing musical frames and having to have another hive if you want to split and all that stuff, uh, which you do for all kinds of uh, reasons, but when they're encased into a building or an outbuilding, that makes it a little bit harder to
1: add uh, boxes. So um, Izzy K. Bob, I like saying that just because it sounds fun. Uh, says that loves the weekly show and is curious if the live show is going to be a regular thing so technically the original concept back a year ago when we switched over to podbean was that we could go through and do this maybe you know once a month or once a quarter one or the other to do our listener questions because through the first two years, all of the listener questions were emails that came in or it's kind of started evolving over into emails and social media messages and instant messenger things and such. And we would respond to all of them as they came in. But a lot of them were really good questions that other listeners may you know, benefit from that knowledge. So we started doing listener question episodes as bonus episodes every now and then. And with us having the ability to go through and do a live show like this, it allows everybody to actually you know be represented and and get to hear themselves on the show which is really kind of cool especially if you're a longtime listener or fan of the show to actually be a part of it is really awesome and we think it's really awesome because it's so much more fun interacting with the individuals like you you heard the banter between rachel and i rachel is a very regular commenter and sends lots of messages and so you know we've developed a rapport um, which is why I feel comfortable you know, telling her she sucks on the air <laughs> so because it's all said with much love and she understands that. So um, that is the concept of it. Now, due to the pandemic and everything else that was going on, we did not nearly utilize it as much as we had intended to. We've only technically done three live shows, this being the third. We did one live listener question. We did a live show featuring Australia with Brett and then we've done this live show to feature the natural beekeeping corner and questions for that. But absolutely, it is something that we have the ability to do and we enjoy doing and would love to kind of get back into the mindset of doing that more frequently and have that be part of a, a regular ongoing. That was the original concept. So we just need to do better about making sure that's a thing. Yep. Like <laughs> yep. To yep. Like a winner to me. Yep. And on that note, uh, I, we have been on here way longer than I promised Natalie's husband we would be. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) That's okay. Um, But I do greatly appreciate everybody tuning in. I appreciate all of the questions and the feedback and the conversations here in the chat and everybody who actually physically called in. Thank you for that. And definitely, Natalie, we greatly appreciate you joining us this year and doing the natural beekeeping segments and being a part of the Hive Jive family. It is awesome to have you and it's just a pleasure every time. Thank you. Well,
3: I'm so grateful for the opportunity and I'm I thoroughly enjoy every time I get to talk to you guys and 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 do this and share a little bit of a different perspective. So, I'm very grateful and uh, thoroughly enjoying myself. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mr. Thank Ken, you going to you going to take us out
0: of here? Yeah, thank y'all family for tuning in. We appreciate it, Natalie. Thank you for everything and uh well, we'll just keep the good the good stuff rolling, and uh, and we'll see y'all on the other side, family. Be
3: good, be healthy, and be mindful.
1: Perfect. And be wise. <laughs> be Wise, be well, be healthy, be happy, be gone. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll chat with you next week. Bye, bye. Bye, y'all. You've been
0: listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.